Hello and welcome. My name is Nick Roberts. Lieutenant Colonel Ken Peterson flew the B-52H Stratofortress and the B-1B Lancer bombers during some of the most tense moments of the Cold War. Today, we talk about his experience while on alert, ready to take flight with terrifyingly powerful weapons in tow. We also cover the time Ken briefed the Air Force's Scientific Advisory Board, which recommended the B-1 program to President Reagan. Aside from flying one of the fastest bombers in the world, Ken is full of stories about crossing paths with legendary historical figures, like General James Doolittle, who led the first strike on the Japanese homeland after the Pearl Harbor attack in World War II, or Neil Armstrong, the first human to set foot on the moon. With Ken's permission, I posted his picture with Armstrong on my website, and I blurred the faces of the others in the photos for their privacy, but see the link uh, for that in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode because I certainly did. Without further ado, I am honored to bring you Ken Peterson. Yeah, well, uh, you know, again, great to meet you. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm really excited to get into your stories pertaining to like the B-52 and the B-1. But um, maybe first, uh, could you tell me a little bit about kind of your history? Like, where'd you go to college and how did you decide on the Air Force? And, you know, when you were with uh, the Air Force, like, what what did you do? Well, I always wanted to fly since I was a little kid. Back in the 50s, when uh, people were collecting baseball cards, I was collecting airplane cards. And we had this big walnut tree in our backyard, and I used to climb up to the top of it. And I'd go so high that the wind would blow me and I would sway and I'd just look over the horizon and I just always, always wanted to be there. So I collected the airplane cards. I used to, I was on the lower bunk, had a two bunk bed in our room and I would put all the airplane cards on the bottom of the bunk so I could just lay there and look up and uh, dream about flying. And so I pursued that, and sure enough, that's what I did. Yeah. Where, so where did you I end up going the, to? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, well, I I uh, went to ROTC at Brigham Young University, mm-hmm. and after that, uh, commissioned a second lieutenant and went to pilot training down in Columbus, Mississippi. And uh, interesting note: out of the eighty people that started our pilot training class only 40 graduated. So we had a attrition rate of about 50%. People uh, just couldn't handle the pressure or decided they didn't want the, I don't know, danger or the risk or whatever. So so we had a pretty big dropout. Uh, When the selection of airplanes came down, we had uh, four fighters and they went to the top of the class, which I was not there. And then I decided, well, I can either take a transport and fly all over the world and be gone all the time or take a bomber and stay home. So I chose the B-52. And so that's what I chose right out of pilot training. Right. After, after that, I went to Castle Air Force Base for B-52 training. And then my first assignment was Kinchlow Air Force Base in northern Michigan. And that's kind of how I started. Right. And was the, was the Northern Michigan um, placement, were you there with the B-52 for kind of a particular reason? Was this kind of during yeah. maybe like the, the Chrome yeah. Dome era? Uh, no, yeah. the Chrome Dome era was already over by the right. time I came on active duty. Um, but we did uh, sit on alert about every, once every three weeks. So you have two weeks off alert where you'd fly training missions and stuff, and then one week on alert. Right. And that's where you would sit in a uh, controlled environment next to your airplane. And as soon as the klaxon went off, the first thing you did was run out to the airplane. And then you go from there. And I was going to tell you that uh, that uh, in your episode on the Broken Arrow, you talked about a missile warning that happened in 1979. I was on alert there when that happened. And it was, uh, it was interesting to say the least. 
I can tell you the story about it if you want. Oh, I, I'd love to. I'd love to hear it. I mean, this is it's a rare okay, opportunity. Well, I, I get to connect <laughs> to connect two podcast episodes like this. Yeah. Well, the uh, normally when you sit on alert, uh, at least once a week they have a practice klaxon, and so the practice klaxon goes off, and you run out to the airplane, and sometimes you start the motors, and sometimes you don't and you decode the message and then you do whatever it says and after you decode the message it usually says this is a practice exercise uh, shut down engines and uh, return to your station so uh, i did that for years and then in 79 incoming missile warning happened the klaxon went off and i happened to be jogging around the parameter i had on a pair of shorts, that was it. I kept a flight suit in the airplane so I could go directly to the airplane. So I ran to the airplane and I jumped over the small little fence they had and the guard pointed his F-16 at me and said, give me the password. (laughs) And so I had to give him the password or he would have shot me. And I gave him the password, ran up into the airplane and we started to decode the message. And usually we're joking around and everybody's kind of making jokes and having fun. Oh, here we go again. I wonder if the wing commander's watching us and are we going to make our timing and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden it went dead silent and everybody quit joking. And the electronic warfare officer who was the first to decode the message, the pilots are up there getting the engines started and everything. Uh, He said, pilot, you better check me on this message. And so he gave me the the code and I looked it up and it was a real live uh, missile warning. And so everybody just went silent because we thought, oh no, this is it. You know, we've been practicing going on alert for years and now all of a sudden this is the real thing. So we sat there with engines running and just waiting for the next message, which it would be the go message. And then all of a sudden it came through to shut down engines, uh, return to the facility. So right. it, was, and, it was kind of a scary situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah I was just going to ask, um, so did, did it feel different? So this was, and, and by the way, just to give maybe a little bit of context for, uh, anyone who, who might uh, hear this, um, so the, the incident you're referring to in 1979, I, I believe this, this was one of those events where like NORAD had a uh, false, it, it might've been like one of those, I, I forget the exact instance, but I think it, maybe it was a faulty computer simulation or something on yes, the, in, uh, in NORAD. And then they alerted uh, um, uh, one of the generals who, and they were about to call the, the, the white house, I, I believe, um, and kind of have the president make the decision on whether to, um, launch a re- response retaliatory strike. Is, is that about right? Yeah, that's, that's what happens. The, when they first get the warning, of course, they send us to the airplanes to get us ready. And then um, we have to decode the message and then we go from whatever the next message is. So we got the message to start engines and stand by. And this is a real live, uh, this is not an exercise. Right. And after, you know, having an exercise for so many times, it kind of shook us up a little bit, to say the least. But uh, then they, uh, by the time they checked it out and everything, they realized that it was a false alarm and they sent us back, shut down the engines and went back to base. So right. We never took off or anything. We right. just sat there with the engines running, ready to go. Right. And <laughs> If uh, we had to, <laughs> we right. would have gone. <laughs> what kind of um so i mean in in the you know I, I imagine like you're sitting on alert you have live ordnance on the plane um you know what uh what sort of uh munitions were you were you carrying in the b-52 well i i don't want to get into that but we had oh, okay. uh, yeah. we had enough to uh to do whatever the president wanted us to do right so we have <laughs> what we carry and I, th- I think I can tell you this, what each airplane has a specific mission that they go to. And depending on what the message says is what we do. And we can go to different paths. There's different paths, but uh, it's called the 
uh, emergency war order, and we call it the Ewo mission. And and by the way, later on I'll talk about that when I met General Doolittle. Right. Um, but so we carry the uh, e- EWO mission, and we're ready to go. I mean, it was a could have could have been a long day. <laughs> right. And I mean, the the range on a B fifty two is something like eight thousand miles. Is is that right? Well, yeah, yeah. It's it's over six thousand miles. It gotcha. uh, it can get you more than halfway around the world without refueling. Right. Of course, uh, all the mission all the missions are planned with air refueling. Which is kind of fun. I yeah. like doing air refueling. It's kind of fun part of the mission, but yeah, yeah. Uh, hit the tanker, give you a little extra gas, go a little bit farther. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, speaking of uh, B fifty twos, you know, we we've been texting a little bit about um, you know the documentary Buzz One Four, um, and yes. uh, I was wondering. If, so it, it sounds like you you maybe got a chance to watch it, and uh, if yes, so, I did. I, I got a chance thoughts? to watch it. Yeah. Well, it's it's amazing that in that movie or documentary that the farmer actually pulled the weapon out of the swamp or wherever it was. And of course, in today's world, that would never happen. They would have, it would be taped off, guarded by many people. I think that was early in the days when they, they weren't expecting stuff like that. and They didn't know how to handle it. Right. But the broken arrows, I mean, it's still uh, live and well. If it ha- if they lose, uh, have an accident or something, they still call a broken arrow. And uh, but nowadays it would be guarded, and you couldn't even get close to it. Right. So. And uh, I remember so the the main uh, one of the main crashes that they highlight in Buzz One Four was uh, the one that I believe happened in Maryland. Um, and, uh, and, and it, it seemed to me that there was an issue with maybe earlier models of the B-52, like maybe the B-52G, I want to say, uh, where the, the tail, um, actually came off in high turbulence. Uh, right, right. We call them the tall tails. Yeah. It was, it was the F model and before. Right. Oh. And I flew the H model. So. The G model and the H model had the short tails. Okay. So they had fixed that problem by then. By the time I was flying them, the H models had the fan jet engines, and it was the latest one. So. Right. But yeah, that that wasn't really a problem. There is there is one thing that I want to tell your listeners though, the chances of a weapon like that falling and hitting the ground and uh, doing a nuclear explosion are. It's almost impossible, just the way that the whole thing's designed. It's impossible. So it would never, it would never happen. You have, right. it has to be set off exactly, precisely, or else it'd never happen. So right. people don't need to worry about that. <laughs> uh, they do need, they do need to worry about. They do have uh, stuff like TNT and stuff like that on some of them, and, and those things can happen, but. Uh, as far as a nuclear explosion, no, never happened. Never. I'm quite confident right. of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's from, from what I uh, had heard or, you know, been reading about, you know, a lot of these, these issues or a lot of the, the um, instances where um, they had to jettison uh, nuclear weapons because, you know, the plane uh-huh. malfunctioned or was about to crash. Um, a, a lot of the issues it seemed like just came from the, uh, the conventional explosives uh, in the bombs detonating and then kind of spreading around like plutonium and uh, radioactive debris and that being kind of the, the, the main issue. But it, yeah, it sounds like, yeah, yeah, yeah that could, that could be a, a problem. Yes, that could be yeah. a problem, but I, I don't know about the plutonium part, but yeah. the enriched uranium definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, maybe I had, <laughs> had the, the fissile yeah, material. Well, around. well yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so, oh, and the, the other thing just before I, I really, you know, I, I really want to get into um, kind of, you know, all of your stories in regard to uh, uh, the B1 and things like that. But um, you had a really good story okay. you were mentioning about uh, the T-37 and, and, and being, a, you know, a young pilot and training. Uh, and I was wondering if you could yeah. kind of uh, talk through that. Uh, one. Yeah. Well, I went through pilot training in the early 70s, and that was before the big ban on smoking. And although I never smoked and uh, never have had that habit, 
my instructor pilot did. And of course, he wasn't supposed to smoke in a T-37 because of the oxygen and everything, but he would turn his oxygen off and while I was flying and he would light up a cigarette and he'd sit there smoking while we're doing loops and rolls and everything. And one time he dropped his cigarette and when I started to pull up and he dropped his cigarette and he said, I have the aircraft. He took it from me. He rolled upside down. The cigarette fell from the floor to the top of the canopy because that was down towards the earth. And he reached up, grabbed the cigarette, put it in his mouth, turned the airplane, rolled the airplane over right side up and gave me the airplane back. <laughs> and then we both had a good laugh of that. I thought I was going to bust the ride because I pulled a lot of G's on him right yeah. when he was lighting up his cigarette because uh, I didn't really like him smoking in the airplane like that. And, yeah. uh, but he didn't bust me for the ride. So we had a good laugh about that. That's great. And uh, and so you did most of your training in the T-37, is that right? T-37, you start, when I went through pilot training, everybody went to T-37s and then to T-38s, and then you graduated. That was it, just those two airplanes. So, and then, of course, after uh, after you graduate, then you get your assignment, and that's when I went on to B-52s. Right. So. And the T-37 was a prop, and then the T-38 was a jet. Is that? Is no, that no, T-37 was a little, no. No, T-37 oh. was a little twin-engine jet. Oh, okay. Uh, I had that wrong. One of, one of the things that I was always fascinated with were jet aircraft. And my older brother went in the Navy. And at that time, the Navy had some propeller aircraft that they flew in pilot training. And quite honestly, that's the only reason I didn't go in the Navy, because I didn't want to fly a propeller-driven airplane. <laughs> I wanted to fly jets. And the Air Force was... T-37, little twin-engine jet, and little two-passenger twin-engine jet, and then the T-38, which is a supersonic. We call it the white rocket because it would go supersonic and had the pilot in front and instructor in the back. Right. Where the T-37 was side-by-side. Side. That's Got why it. I could see my instructor smoking because he was sitting right beside me there. <laughs> That's so great. I I think the now, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the T six is the can it's a propeller aircraft. It looked like, um, and that seems to be. Yeah, the, I, I, I don't know. I've lost touch with the, all right. that stuff, so I couldn't yeah. really tell you how it is now. But yeah. yeah, they they they're more specialized right now. But as yeah. I understand it, though, they're hurting for pilots right now, and uh, even calling back some that have already retired. Wow. But I'm in no danger of that. Because <laughs> I'm so old, so. <laughs> well, it's uh, yeah, it's it's good. Um, uh, I was going to ask you. So, did before you, you know, before you even went through pilot training, uh, you know, and, and did ROTC, did, did you end up getting like a private pilot's license, or you know, what was your? Uh, yes, as a yes, as a matter of fact, I did. I was on a scholarship at BYU, and it was a scholarship that just paid money. And I sunk that money into flying lessons at the local airport. And so I did have my private pilot's license when I went on active duty. So I just love to fly. I just, uh, but I look back at it now and some of the stupid things I did when I was young and didn't know any better. It kind of scares me to think of some of the dumb things I did. Overloading the airplane was one of them. Oh, wow. Uh, doing doing negative G's longer than the uh, engine was specified to keep oil going to the pistons and a few things like that that I did because I was just a young kid horsing around, you know, having fun. <laughs> was this, uh, were you in something like when you were doing this, were you in something like a Cessna, like 172? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. I started flying in a 150 and then a Cessna 172 and then a Cardinal that had retractable gear. So wow. it was, it was fun. I, I enjoy flying. I, I just love it. Yeah, I, I've just started myself on uh, on one seventy twos. Oh, very. How far I'm, is it? I'm very early yet? on. I have not soloed yet. I, I'm actually I'm going in for lesson number two on uh, Wednesday. Um, oh, what fun! <laughs> Um, so I, I think hopefully I'm going to be in the 172 just from here on out. Um, but I actually, I did my first lesson in the 152 because the 172 was taken. 
Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah. And I, I did my first couple of takeoffs and I haven't, I haven't been able to land the plane yet, but I, I set us up, I set us up for the landing and then my instructor took over for the final. Um, but, uh, it was, it was exhilarating. I mean, I, you know, it was my, so my, my, um, instructor actually is a 20, 20 year veteran of, you know, the air force and he, you know, he retired and, uh, uh, became a United pilot. And then, um, but he, he said, I was actually, his, I'm his first, uh, civilian, uh, trainee. Um, and, uh, he was, he was, um, very, uh, hands off, <laughs> uh, on my first yeah. flight. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd never, oh, that's good. yeah. I mean, I, I had never even taxied and I was kind of ping ponging down the taxiway cause I was trying to get the hang of the pedals. Um, right. And, exactly. And I'd barely gotten the hang of that. And he was like, all right, take us off. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the torque effect, you know, uh, is a little, uh, hard to get used to, uh, right out the gate. And so, you know, I was, I was kind of ping ponging down the runway as well to try to counter the, the left pole. Um, but, uh, yeah. So anyway, well, you'd like, you'd like jets. Jets don't have that problem. Right. They don't have that <laughs> torque problem, but, but well, hey, when you have yeah. your first solo in the air yeah. force, your first solo, uh, they, when you come down, your classmates throw you in a tub of water, they dunk you <laughs> in a tub of water, which is kind of fun. But the thing I remember most about my first solo ride was I took off and the airplane seemed to climb a little bit faster because I didn't have that other person in the airplane. And then I looked over, the T-37 is side by side. I looked over and I saw he was missing. And I said to myself, my God, I've got to do this. <laughs> if I don't land this thing, I'm in big trouble. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, the first solo rides, uh, quite a confidence builder because you got to do it. You don't have a choice. Right. You got to do it. So. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm hoping I can get there. I kind of achieve like a certain comfort level, you know, hope, hopefully soon, you know, I just, I really want to be able to nail a landing, uh, or two. Yeah, of, you know, course, of course. But there were, there were days in pilot training when I would pray for thunderstorms. What happens is you have to have certain amount of progress. And if you don't have the progress and for example, you have to be able to land airplane by ride. I don't know what it is now, but I think it was ride seven or eight for us. So if you couldn't land the airplane by yourself comfortably by ride uh, six, seven or eight, I don't remember exactly. Then they would give you a pink slip mm. kind of, uh, and that pink slip would mean that you'd have to go on another instructor ride. And then if you couldn't do it on that one, they'd give you another pink slip. And on the third one, if you couldn't do it, you're out. Oh, you'd wow. wash out of pilot training. So it put a lot of pressure on us. And that wasn't just for the landing. It was for everything, for the loops. And the. Uh, I, I think the hardest thing was the landing and the uh, four-ship. Four-ship was kind of hard for me, especially if you're number four. because mm -hmm. And your dad can tell you this. Number four out there, he's just pinging up and down all the time and, and playing with the fuel and putting it in gas and taking it off and putting it in and taking it off. So, but, but fortunately I never got a pink ride. So I made it through in flying colors and, but I did several days pray for thunderstorms. So I wouldn't have to fly that day. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds pretty intense. Um, you know, it's it's pretty intense. Yeah. It's pretty intense. Um, but. so uh, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, kind of moving back toward, you know, your experience with the, the B-52. So, uh, what, what, uh, what led to your transition from the B-52 to the B-1? Well, that's an interesting story. At least to me, it is. I don't know whether your listeners will be interested too, but, uh, after, um, well, I, I kind of don't know where to start this, uh, I worked my way up pretty fast in the B-52. I went from co-pilot to aircraft commander. Uh, I was still a, sec a first lieutenant when I made aircraft commander, and which is rare. And then I uh, became an instructor pilot, then a standaval check pilot. And that's when uh, that's when I, they called me at, from headquarters SAC to come in and brief the scientific advisory board. 
I'll, I'll tell you that story a little bit later. But so I, I progressed through the B-52 and I worked up just about as high as I could go as a, just a line pilot. And then I got a call uh, from headquarters SAC to come and work there as a staff officer. And so I was a staff officer and I started, I made a, <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I made a pretty good name for myself. And, uh, and that's a whole nother story uh, with a new missile program. And uh, then one day the general called me, I was in R&D and the general called me and wanted me to be his exec officer. And being an exec officer is a 13 month control tour. Well, they were doing the selection for the B-1 right in the middle of my 13-month tour there. And I wanted to fly the B-1. I didn't want to be an exec officer to some screaming general. There's two kinds of generals, the, the nice ones that you like and that encourage people and the, and the patent type that, you know, you can, never, you can never make them happy. And I worked for one of the patent types. I could never make him happy. I would do things perfectly and he'd always find something wrong with it. So anyway, so I was anxious to get out of there and get in the B1 program. And my buddy that worked down in personnel, he came up one day and he said, hey, Ken, uh, the general's gonna pick the people for the B1 program today, a different general, uh, the deputy commander for operations. He's gonna pick the uh, pilots for the B1 program today and your name's not on there. I said, how come my name's not on there? I've, I've been putting it on my dream sheet. I've let everybody know I want to go in the B-1. I have a perfect, absolute perfect spotless uh, flying record. Uh, worked my way up as stand out check pilot and everything. And he said, because you're in the middle of your 13-month controlled assignment, in order to get out of that, you have to have a two-star general or above sign a paper to release you from the assignment. Well, I worked for a two-star general and uh, so I went down and because I was an exec officer, I could check out anybody's personnel record. I went down and checked out my own personnel record. I waited till I knew the DO, the other two-star general that was gonna make the decision was in a staff meeting. I walked in and I knew his exec officer too because exec officers get to know each other. And I walked, I walked into the general's desk there's this big stack of folders, had about 25 on his desk. And I lifted up about half the stack and shoved my file in the middle of it. So uh, long about two days later, I get a call from my friend down in personnel. He says, the general picked you, the general picked you, but uh, I can't release you without that letter from the two star. I said, okay. And I went over to the old IBM selected typewriter and I, typed out a letter. And when my two-star general came in, I said, sir, I got to talk to you for a second. Uh, he said, what? I said, I got selected for the um, B-1 program, but I need you to sign this waiver to release me from my assignment. And he gave me the dirtiest look I've ever gotten. <laughs> and he grabbed that paper out of my hand. He signed it and he threw it back at me. I and it fell on the ground and he turned around and walked out. And that's the last time he ever talked to me. Two days later, I was relieved of that assignment. I was no longer his exec officer, but I got the B1 program and that's all I cared about. So yeah. off I went to the B1 program. Right. And, um, and you know, so you were mentioning to me, I mean, you, you just kept dro dropping all of these like really interesting nuggets into our text conversation. Um, one of the ones that you mentioned was that you were involved in in actually um, proposing or or getting the B one program uh, to to exist, right? Is am I right? Well, I... right, right. When yeah. I was at uh, when I well, it started out when I was at uh, Ellsworth. I was a instructor pilot in B fifty twos, and we got this call, and the wing commander came down and talked to me. He says, "Hey, Ken, uh, uh, headquarters SAC wants a crew up there to." brief the emergency war mission. So you take all your bags with all the top secret uh, charts and everything and go brief the scientific advisory board. And this was right in the time when uh, Jimmy Carter uh, uh, was uh, leaving office. And 
when Reagan was coming into office. And so they knew they were going to gin up some program. And the Scientific Advisory Board is the one who advises the president. And so uh, we packed up our bags and we flew a B-52 from Ellsworth, South Dakota, down to Offutt, which is in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, we went in there and they put us up in front on the stand to brief the Scientific Advisory Board, which I had no idea at the time what that was. And all of a sudden, all these four-star generals and Jimmy Doolittle comes walking in there and they sit down and I'm introduced. Uh, here's Captain Peterson. Uh, he is going to brief you on their mission. And I had no idea why they wanted me to brief the mission, but uh, what they wanted to do was to find out what the mission was of the bomber so that when they picked a new bomber, uh, they could, uh, you know, it could fulfill the mission. So we gave, we gave the briefing and all of a sudden these generals started asking me questions like uh, how far from this and how much for this and uh, what, do, what do you guys do for, to stay awake and all these kinds of uh, questions and everything. And so we, uh, we, I, just, I just answered them and uh, and that uh, that kind of helped them form uh, what they were going to pick for the next bomber the they had they were considering two different options the b1a model had already flown and carter had canceled that program and once he canceled the program and then he heard this is kind of interesting he heard that uh, reagan was probably going to start it up again and he would he had like 20 days left in office, and he sent out the, a federal team to Rockwell out of Palmdale in the desert to destroy all the machinery that built the B1A model. And because he didn't want he didn't want the president to pick a B1B model. Uh, and but Rockwell, in their wisdom, uh, hood, uh, hid a bunch of their machinery out in the desert where these feds couldn't find it. So uh, long story short, once we started the B-1 program up again, they brought all this machinery out from that was hidden out in the desert and started up right away. I, I just got a warning on my headset that it's uh, batteries getting low. Okay. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah. You're coming through live okay. here. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Okay. We're good to go. Yeah. So... Um, so you were just talking about, uh, the, uh, basically how the B1, uh, came into existence with, with Reagan. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So Rockwell, uh, Rockwell was smart. They hit a bunch of equipment. So when Carter sent the feds, this is how the government works in case uh, you don't know. They, when they want to kill a project, they not only kill it, but they destroy everything to build it. And, uh, then, uh, Reagan came into office and, uh, one of the scientific advisory board's uh, um, recommendations was to go with the B1B rather than the stretch FB111. The FB111 uh, was in operation, and they were considering doing what they called a stretch model, which uh, gave them a little more capability to go a little bit farther, hold a little bit more gas, and go a little bit farther. So the big choices came down to the uh, F-111 stretch or uh, continue with the B-1 program and build the B-1B. And the B-1B is what went out. But, there, but there's more to the story, though. So, so here I am, a, a, a young captain briefing all these four-star generals, uh, one of which was Jimmy Doolittle. And uh, we finished our briefing, and they asked us all these questions. And all of a sudden, uh, General John Shaw a four-star general, he stood up and he said, uh, General Doolittle and I uh, would like to go out and see your airplane, Captain Peterson. Do you mind uh, taking us out? And of course, what, you know, what was I going to say? No, <laughs> I'm not taking you out. Uh, so I said, uh, of course. And so out we went to the airplane. And this was in the summertime in Offutt in Nebraska. And I don't know whether you've ever been in Nebraska in the summertime, but it's gets hot and humid. Yeah, I remember it's a little muggy, maybe. Yeah, yeah a little muggy. So uh, General Shaw, four-star general, who was a gentleman general, people loved him, uh, 
he came and Jimmy Doolittle, and they climbed up in the airplane and they got in the cockpit with me and they both wanted to sit in the pilot and co-pilot seat. So they climbed in the co-pilot and pilot seat and they started asking me questions like, uh, how comfortable is this? And how do you do, Jimmy Doolittle says, uh, how, how can you stand to sit in this airplane for 15 plus hours? And I said, well, it would be better if we didn't have to have a parachute on our back. In the B-52, when you strap in your ejection seat, you have to wear the parachute. If you physically put on the parachute, which is strapped to the ejection seats. And I told him, I said, well, that's, that's just uncomfortable having to wear that for a long time. It kind of wears on you. And in the meantime, I started dripping with sweat. And Jimmy Doolittle pulls a handkerchief out of his pocket and he reaches over and he wipes my forehead with his handkerchief. And uh, I was just, as a young captain, to have somebody of that stature uh, sit there and wipe the sweat off my brow, I, I was just amazed. I'm amazed that a general officer would do that to just some little captain like I was. But uh, anyway, so that so I we had we just had a nice little talk, and he was an interesting gentleman, and he asked some very poignant questions about the mission and everything. And I think that I think that that kind of helped when they the scientific advisory board uh, recommended some of the changes that needed to be made to the B1A. Uh, they recommended that they not have to wear the parachute. So I don't know whether I had any say in that or not, but but uh, the B1B you don't wear a parachute, so right. it's built into the ejection seat. Right. Uh, but uh, with General Doolittle, uh, did did I mean did he kind of talk a little bit about you know himself or his experience? I mean he's he's a legend, um, and I was wondering if uh, you got into anything. Right. No, no. But I did. Uh, I did ask for his autograph. <laughs> and and you know you <laughs> I I don't know how many uh, people would go up to a general officer and say please give me your autograph but I did and he I I don't I I felt like he would do that because I did take him out to our airplane and and we kind of got comfortable with each other a little bit so yeah he gave me his autograph and uh, then he said so long and they climbed out and they went the staff car picked them up and off they went. Right. Um, what a what a gentleman though he was. Yeah, he was he was a nice guy in person. Yeah, he was. He was really nice. His questions weren't uh, they weren't out to get you. They were just uh, to inform him. He he had a a curiosity. I'm sure he'd been at a B fifty two before. I'm, I don't think that was his first time at a B fifty two, but he hadn't been in one for a while, and they were in the process of making a recommendation to President Reagan. And so he wanted to make sure he had all these facts straight and he wanted to know the mission. And, and right. uh, so that was the birth of the B-1 after that. Wow. It didn't replace the B-1 totally, or B-52 totally, but it did replace a lot of, a lot of the B-52s. The B-52 is still flying today. Right. It's amazing, amazing airplane. Absolutely amazing airplane. Um, and, and, uh, at this point in time, uh, was Curtis LeMay still in the picture? Uh, no, uh, our four-star general, <laughs> that's a whole nother story in itself, was a guy named Benny Davis. Um, he was, he was quite a, uh, quite a general. He, he would not talk to a captain or below. I passed him one time in the hallway at, uh, Omaha when I was, at, worked on the staff there. And uh, he wouldn't even acknowledge that I said hello to him. Wow. Because he, he, he just had a habit of he wouldn't talk to Captain or Blow. Just wouldn't. So. Wow. wonder what, what that's about. Seems. Uh, no, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. He was, <laughs> a, he, he was kind of a, I, I only went into one briefing with him. And he always had his cup of coffee and his cigarette going. And I was told to sit in the back. And even if the briefer who was briefing my program, uh, he was a lieutenant colonel and I was a captain, even if he made a mistake, I was not to say anything. And I was only there in case the General Davis had a question that my boss could not answer, which I knew the program backwards and forwards. So 
he felt comfortable with me there. But ben, Benny Davis, when he had a question, he would just raise his hand and everything would stop in the room. And then he would look at the chart and he then he would ask his question. Then he'd put his hand down and, and the briefer would continue. But he, yeah, he's quite a character. There was no, uh, no laughing or introductions or anything. He'd walk in, get the briefing and walk out. That was it. Right. Do you, do you think that, that, you know, it, it seems like a lot of, you know, generals like this have almost this kind of cult of personality around them. And, you know, I mean, I know, you know, MacArthur during World War II was definitely a character and, you know, there's, there are these generals all through history. Do you think that was yeah, just a, Pat, oh, sorry. Well, and Patton too. Patton was, was a guy that you could never please. He was never happy with you. Right. He always pushed you way beyond your limits, you know? And do you, and that was his philosophy. Yeah, and, and do you, do you think that that is something that was just of of that time, or do, I mean, or do do you think I mean is that still something that continued up until when you retired? Like there was this kind of persona in generals that's just I mean it's just going to be there forever. You know that some of them are nice, no, or some of them are yeah, no, yeah. no. It's definitely it's definitely turned the corner right around the time I was getting ready to retire. The a lot of the old blood and guts type generals are they they never made it to three or four stars they uh they usually got eliminated by two star by a particular general that i worked for uh he never made it to three star he got eliminated and that's a whole nother story too how he got eliminated uh, the air force doesn't fire you what they do is they send you to some remote assignment working for somebody that's uh, junior to you and once that happens, you know, your career is over with. And that, that's what happened to my general. They sent him off to some uh, to work for some admiral who was uh, junior to him. And this admiral would be his boss. And he knew that writing was on the wall, and retired, put in his papers and retired. Yeah. So going, going back to the, the B1, though, um, so uh, what was the primary mission of the B1? Um, and, you know, kind of what, what was it designed to do? Well, uh, uh, it was designed, uh, it had about um, one one hundredth of the radar cross section that the B-52 had. <laughs> so uh, w what happens is that uh, a, a SAM site, a surface-to-air missile site, what they do is they paint paint you with the radar that you're coming in, and then once you get into range, they fire the missile at you. The B-1, because of its low radar cross-section, could get way, way closer before they even realized you were coming, and because of its speed and low altitude, it would be past the SAM site before it could uh, do the... Uh, equation to fire on you, make the decision, do the equation and fire on you. So, so it had great defensive capabilities for that. The B-52 was basically a high altitude bomber, but it did do low level missions. Uh, it did have a, a semi-trained following radar system, but not near as uh, good as the B-1. The B-1 had a totally hands-off trained following radar system. So even in pitch black, couldn't see anything. Uh, you could take your hands off and let the, uh, like an autopilot fly the airplane. And it would uh, avoid the terrain. So. And it was a great airplane. It was like, a, it was like going from a semi-truck to a sports car when I switched from B-52s to B-1. I mean, it looks great. to me... It looks to me like a, a like a large fighter jet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. and it actually handles like a fighter jet. Uh, you were talking when you were interviewing your dad. You were talking about Red Flag. We uh, B ones participated in Red Flag, and what we would do it was kind of sneaky, but we would uh, we'd have like a four day exercise with them. And for the first three days, we would come in at a medium altitude, somewhere between 20 and 25,000, into the red flag area. And the fighters would respond on us, and they would try to intercept us and shoot us down. And 
I, I don't know what the terminology is now, but back then they would call splash. And splash meant that they shot you down. So when you heard that on the radio, you know that you'd been shot down. And uh, we did that for the first three days out of the four. And got shot down many times in the practice. On the last day, though, we came in from a different direction. We came in at a much lower altitude. And we went at uh, supersonic speeds. And once you, uh, once you hit the button to go supersonic, but not, you don't hit the button, you put the throttles up and light the afterburners. But once you do that, uh, you're using a lot of fuel. And by the time the fighter jets, even though they could go faster than you, but by the time they saw you and realized what you were and started chasing you, uh, and they would have to you know, go full throttle, light their afterburners too, but they would run out of gas before they could catch up with us. And that was the capability of the B-1. It had so much fuel that we could, uh, we could run supersonic for a long time. And a fighter jet can't. They run out of gas after, I don't know what the times are, but right. they can only do it so long. But. And so, uh, I, I was just also going to ask, so the, the B-1 also, I, I noticed, has the variable wing geometry. And I was wondering what, that, yes. what that's for. Well, it's it's all uh, part of lift. Uh, the slower you go, the more uh, lift you have to have. The, so you have to you have to sweep the wings forward and uh, put your flaps down, and it gives you more wing surface, and you're able to go slower. So when we take off, we have the wings forward. And you get up to we get up to about 325 knots, and then we'd start sweeping the wings back. And once you sweep the wings back, of course, it reduces drag, and drag at high speeds is critical. And so it reduces drag and reduces radar cross section, uh, the ability of the radar to spot you, and uh, and you go pretty fast. Yeah, you go pretty fast. And is it sort of like the I believe the F-14 Tomcat had a similar kind of setup. And, you know, I was wondering, is it is it an automatic kind of thing or do you have to monitor your wing sweep? Oh, yeah, we definitely you definitely have to monitor it. It's a uh, center of gravity is critical in airplanes. Uh, you'll learn about that when you take your pilot course there. Uh, center of gravity is critical. And when you have a lot of fuel like the B-1 has, if you don't balance your fuel correctly, uh, you can go out of control. The B-1 does not stall. It uh, it quits flying. So you go to high angle of attack, and you go higher, higher, and then you get to a certain angle of attack, and then it just stops flying. Uh, I noticed when you were talking to your dad, uh, you were talking about doing spins and stuff. The T-37, which your dad flew, and which I flew in pilot training, uh, had this capability. You could just stall the thing out, run out of air, get down to nothing when you're climbing, and the airplane would start falling, and then you just recover it. Uh, the B-1, once it started falling, you're you're gone. There's yeah. no recovery. You have to eject at that point. Have to eject, yeah. yeah. Have to eject. So so angle of attack was critical in it, but and and center of gravity. So. But things that, you know, we were well-trained in it, so never was a problem. Right. Um, and did you ever see combat? Were you, were you deployed? Uh, no, I never was. I, uh, I got close to going to Vietnam in the B-52, but uh, our crew got on the list as number 10, and we worked our way up to number 5, and then the war ended. And gotcha. so I never, uh, never got to Vietnam. And uh, during the, the desert storms, I was uh, on the ground as a, as a base commander at Kamis Mashad in Saudi Arabia. So not a flying job. Gotcha. A ground job. So. And I know that the B-1, um, or I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, I was reading that you know, the B-1 was primarily designed to be you know, a nuclear uh, part of just it, it, almost an exclusively nuclear mission, like kind of when it 
when it first hit the scene and then later it was converted to well, yeah, conventional? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Any <laughs> any airplane can be converted to conventional. Right. Uh, the it's just a matter of putting the modifications on it. So yeah, the same with the B fifty two. The B fifty two could carry all sorts of types of weapons. But when the B one first came online, uh, they only had the launchers for uh, nuclear weapons. Right. But it, it soon went to conventional weapons and uh, assumed a conventional role right. also um, they're multi-purpose they can do all they can do all sorts of stuff high altitude supersonic low altitude we were when we flew low-level missions we technically weren't supposed to go below uh, uh 500 feet technically right. not supposed to and pardon me if this is a naive question, but was the was was the B? I mean, the B one. It really, you know, to me, kind of looks like a fighter jet. Like it, 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 you know. And 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 so it made me wonder: did did you carry any air to air kind of capability, like uh, munitions? No, we we had uh, we had multiple self defense things that we did, and uh, but none of them were offensive. They were all defensive. That we even have a, one of our crew members was, was called the defensive system officer. And that's all he did was uh, electronic warfare and stuff like that. So, right. So we were protected for that reason. Right. Yeah. And, and so what was the, um, primary adversary that, I mean, as a B1 pilot, you know, you know, say you you had been deployed and and uh, you know you had you had some mission. I you know this is during the Cold War, and uh, you know say things kicked off. Um, what was the adversary that a B one pilot had most to fear? <laughs> well, I think I think fighter jets and surface air missiles were our two biggest threats and but we had we had uh, defensive maneuvers we could do we had our electronic warfare officer could tell us when the radar when they were detecting radars and and uh, so we we were aware of all that stuff and we would do the defensive maneuvers to stay away from it so if we if we lit up a, a fighter pilot someplace we would uh, we would run right rather than fight right because we had no offensive stuff to fight them with and so. the uh, the adversary during like when when you were flying i mean was was the one that you were sort of most paying attention to or sort of maybe training against was it like the the flanker or what was the um the adversary of that of that time well, I'd rather not get into that stuff. Okay. Uh, yeah. A lot of that stuff was classified, and I'm sure it's probably not now, but I don't know that, and so I'd rather I'd rather stay out of that. Of course. Particular discussion, but yeah. we I'll, I'll just leave it at we were well trained. Right. We were well trained, and we knew who our enemy was, and we knew how to avoid him, get around him, or beat him. Right. So. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to take you into. I it's just because I'm a civilian and I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to try to take you through uh, any trip wires. Um, okay, but uh, <laughs> um, so uh, you were all so you were also saying in this text thread uh, that you were one of the few people who could tell me why they designed the Bombay in the B one to carry a 163 inch missile, and so I was wondering what the what the story is yes. there. Yeah. Well, this is uh, this story may be boring to some of your uh, listeners, but uh, a long time ago there was a joint fighter program, uh, and the Air Force and the Navy was looking at uh, buying an FB or F one eleven, and so they were going to land an F one eleven on the carrier, and they were going to the Navy was going to buy it, and the Air Force was going to buy it. And that kind of makes sense because, you know, why should the Navy buy a separate airplane than the Air Force and stuff like that? And so when they were designing that, 
the F-111, they had to carry certain weapons. One of them was a missile. And the missile uh, length was undetermined at that time. And on an aircraft carrier, there's a weapons elevator that could only carry a 163-inch missile up the elevator. So in other words, on the aircraft carrier, they store the weapons underneath someplace. And then when they're ready to load them on the airplane, they bring them up the elevator and take them to where the airplane is, either on the lower deck or on the upper decks, and load them onto the airplane. Well, that had 163-inch capability. And so the F-111 was designed because of a elevator in an aircraft carrier to carry a 163-inch missile. Well, when the B-1 was coming along, they the 163-inch missiles were already built, and so they had to design the Bombay in a B-1 to carry the 163-inch missile. So the the funny thing of the story, which I thought was funny, is that the design of the B-1 Bombay was based on an elevator capability on a aircraft carrier. Right. So it's kind of, I thought that was kind of weird, but. Yeah. Not many um, people know that, by the way. And the only reason I know that is because I was the project officer on replacing this 163-inch missile. And that's a whole other story that uh, it, it'd take a long time to tell you that one. Maybe we'll save that one for a future podcast. Yeah, I, I would love that. I would love that. And, you know, so I, um, you know, I, I grew up as a, an Air Force brat. Uh, in England, actually, my you know I think you you know from my podcast that um, my dad was stationed in uh, in Lakenheath and Mildenhall for a time, um, uh-huh. and so I was wondering, did you ever swing into England? Because I remember seeing B ones on the runway at RAF Mildenhall. When do you remember seeing that? Uh, this, Are you sure? Yeah, I, I you know, and it could have just been a stopover um, or something like that. Uh, but I remember seeing B ones. Not many of them, but I remember seeing one. And my dad, I remember my dad pointing out, "Oh, that's a B one." <laughs> uh, oh, okay. And this was this was around two thousand two, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was out of the service by then. I yeah. retired in two thousand. So yeah, it it could happen. I'm sure. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Uh, you need a long runway if they're fully loaded. If the B one's right. fully loaded, you need a pretty long runway. But uh, uh, half fuel load and not many weapons you don't need that long of a runway where uh, where did you spend most of your time while you were flying the b1 were, were you stateside uh, no down in uh Dias air force base in abilene texas yeah stateside gotcha. uh, yeah gotcha. yeah i spent my whole time there i was also uh, and this is well next time we do a podcast you can uh, question me about simulators and oh, yeah. well uh, and uh I was in charge of the simulator program right? and the uh, missile replacement program that I was on. But you, I, you might want to ask me about, I think you're going to ask me about Neil Armstrong. Oh yeah. That, I mean, that was, I was, I was actually hoping we could kind of wrap up on, on that story. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'll, t- I'll tell you, yeah. I, I had uh, a fortunate to, besides meeting General Doolittle, I also had an opportunity to meet Neil Armstrong. Um, he was coming to uh, Dias Air Force Base, and he wanted to see what the B-1 was all about. And so we set him up for a tour in the simulator. And so I got a call from the wing commander and said, hey, Ken, uh, we've got uh, Neil Armstrong's coming and his handlers want to talk to you, and we want you to give him a simulator ride in the B-1 full motion simulator. So I said, okay. So I met with his handlers. This is kind of interesting, I think. His handlers told me two things. They said, do not ask him any questions, and do not ask for a picture to be taken. (laughs) And so I said, okay. They said, he gets that all the time, he gets tired of that. So uh, we weren't really supposed to ask him anything. They didn't want us to ask him, you know, how was it or how anything like that. So he came in 
and he was uh he never really said much to us just hello and i let him into the simulator we rode the simulator he asked me a few questions on how to sweep the wings and a few things like that and then he got out and of course the first thing as he started getting out i said now that he owed me because I just gave him a simulator. I said, uh, sir, do you mind if we take a picture? And he said, okay. So, <laughs> so we took a picture, even though I wasn't supposed to ask him that. I yeah. asked him that anyway. And there's that picture I sent you of uh, yeah. my simulator crew and I standing there with Neil Armstrong. Yeah. But, and so did, was he, um, begrudging or like was it was he a little grumpy about it or or was yeah he well he wasn't i i don't know the yeah. grumpy he was solemn he yeah. never he never really smiled uh he just wanted to know about the b1 and and asked me a few questions and he never he never said hey how you doing or he wasn't wasn't what i would say friendly mm. but but he wasn't honorary either he just uh just was quiet Right. Just quiet and uh, stuck to business. Didn't really smile, except when I asked him to take the picture. I got right. a half smile out of him on that yeah. one. But, um, would it be all right with you if I put that that photo on uh, my website under the the post? Because I, I, whenever I publish podcasts, I I just throw them up on my website. And uh, I was wondering if it would be all right with you if I, I added that photo. Well, yeah, it's okay with me, but I don't know about all the other people in the picture. Mm. You know, I don't know what they, I'm sure they wouldn't object, but okay. uh, that picture was taken many, many years ago. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what the protocol is for posting pictures on the webs these days. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, well, no, no, no worries there then. Um and so, uh, uh, just a, a couple last questions because I know we've been on for an hour, and I, I could probably yes, keep going yes. with you for hours. Because I yes, your 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 listeners, you're going to have to break this up into two sessions. Your <laughs> listeners are going to be well, yeah, bored to death. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Actually, there there uh, the the thing with podcasts, you know, I think the the thing that people like about them is that they can kind of pause them and you know consume them in chunks. And so, a lot of the ones I listen to actually are like maybe like three, four hours sometimes. It's kind of crazy. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll send you a, a link to one. Uh, I, I really enjoy it. It's uh, about kind of about military history, which you might find interesting. Okay. But, um, Great. Uh, but uh, I was wondering, you know, have you have you flown since leaving the Air Force? No, I haven't. I have not flown since leaving the Air Force. I love to fly, but it just uh, just never happened. <laughs> yeah. I, I my last by the way, my last assignment was flying the Predator. I don't know whether you know what that is. It's a UAV. And uh, I was kind of in on the ground floor of uh, the unmanned vehicles. So maybe we better do another podcast. And Definitely. I'll tell you the story about the UAVs, how they came about, and how the, how the two-star general flew all the way from Italy to Bosnia to chew me out. <laughs> but I was right, though. He Definitely. Was wrong. I was right. <laughs> I, I absolutely, I actually, I mean, if, if uh, I, I will extend an invitation to you now uh, for a future episode uh, uh, for on, on drones, because I'm sure we'll, I'll want to feature uh, something around there, but. Um, okay. Sounds but, good. But uh, I guess uh, uh, one other thing I was wondering, so um, I, I know you, so you were a Colonel, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yes. Lieutenant Colonel. Or Lieutenant Colonel. Yes. Gotcha. And, uh, did did bomber guys do the whole nickname thing like fighter pilots are and uh, no not really no we didn't oh gotcha we didn't I, I was gonna ask we you a call sign yeah some of the guys did but uh no as a rule we did we just didn't do that kind of thing i kind of uh i don't know whether you noticed my email is great pilot i kind of i kind of got that because i was uh, when I went into pilot training, I had to get a waiver on my age because I, I was in the army two years before I went to pilot, before I went back to school and, uh, and came into the air force. So I had to get a waiver on my age to go to pilot training. Right. So I was always the, I was young in rank, but old in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I was always the older guy. Yeah. In the right. Rank, so, so and, but, but by the time I made Lieutenant Colonel, 
I think I finally caught up to my age group. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, I mean, I know, so, I mean, you went to BYU and I, I, you know, I'm from Utah as well. So I was wondering, you know, even before you went to pilot training, did, did you also go on a, a mission for the, the L, an LDS mission? Yes. That's a whole nother story. Right. I, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, so, so yeah, that's another two years. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, that's part, yeah. Yeah. That's part of the reason I was older, but uh, I initially uh, joined the army to fly helicopters and let's, let's say that one for next time too. <laughs> that story. Good. I got lots of stories. I can uh, tell you all day long. So. Yeah. I, I wish we could, you know, meet in person and, and uh, you know, kind of, uh, I, I could set up a mic and, you know, we could periodically come back and you know, tell another story or something. So, but uh, you know, Ken, thank you very much for coming on uh, and speaking. Okay. To I enjoyed telling my old war stories to you. Thanks for asking me to talk. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you might be listening to it if you're not already. Also, check out my site at nickrroberts.com and subscribe to the newsletter there, which comes out on a monthly basis. It covers technology, product development, aviation, history, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Thanks for listening and have an awesome day.